I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with Merlin Sheldrake, a biologist, ecologist, and author of the new book, Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures. Merlin's research ranges from fungal biology to the history of Amazonian ethnobotany to the relationship between sound and form in resonant systems. He is also an accordionist and brewer and fermenter. Merlin is simply brilliant, and he's helping us understand how these extraordinary organisms and our relationships with them are changing our understanding of how life works. We're really excited to have him on today. Let's get him on the line. Hi, Merlin. Welcome to At A Distance. It's great to have you with us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So we want to start with a very sort of basic and possibly broad question, but what is at the top of your mind right now? How are you currently in this moment, June 16th, thinking about the pandemic? Well, actually, I wasn't thinking about the pandemic, but now now you mention it. I'm thinking about the way that the British government is easing out of lockdown and the chaotic manner of their handling of the pandemic all the way through and that chaotic manner of their handling it in this easing moment. I was just at the shops and I saw all these people behaving just like normal and I'm kind of waiting for the second wave. Mm. In your new book, Entangled Life, uh, which is extraordinary, you take us on a kind of journey through time and space. And what I found uh, fascinating was how you kind of locate us as the reader in the timeline of the planet, uh, which is kind of how you begin to introduce thinking about ourselves from the perspective of fungi. And you paint these vivid images of how things may have looked 400 million years ago, the Devonian period. Can you describe a bit for us the kind of living spires and the landscape that you paint so beautifully in the beginning of the book? Of course, yes. So this period, and certainly the, the early Devonian, the plant life was still very small and most plants were no higher than a meter or so. And the biggest things around were prototaxites, these enigmatic organisms, these spire-like structures, as you say, that could reach about eight meters tall. So enormous things. They'd been found as fossilized remnants of these organisms had been found in all five continents. And it'd been a big puzzle for biologists for a long time. Um, some people thought they were a plant, um, then they said, we're well, an alga. And eventually it's looking more and more like they're a fungus. But some people say, well, they're still not just a pure fungus because they're a fungus that big. Living on what? You know, there were these small plants living on land. And, but it would take a lot of small plants to power the life of something that large. So some people say they were more like a lichen, which is a combination of a photosynthetic organism, whether an alga or a bacteria, and a fungus. So it's almost certain they're part fungus. Mm. Whether or not they're a whole fungus is still a question. But these things would have towered across the you know, towered above the landscape, eight times taller than everything else, you know. And, and in these organisms, in these huge structures, insects would have lived and tunneling out mazes and corridors. So these things would have been habitats as well as part of the view. Can you tell us a bit about your interest in fungi? How did it begin? Why did you decide to write a book about about fungus? Well, I've been studying them for the last several years. I've been doing a lot of research on on mycorrhizal fungi, which are these 
fungi that live in symbiotic relationship with plants. And they live in plant roots and extend out through the soil and they help plants forage nutrients from the soil and water and, and defend plants from diseases. In exchange, they receive sugars and lipids from the plant. So I've been studying these fungi for a while and the fungal world is so strange. And once you start thinking about these organisms and asking questions about these organisms, door after door just keeps opening. It's kind of hard to escape. So <laughs> this tangled inquiry just kept unfolding. And eventually I found myself working on this book, which is about the fungal kingdom in general and the ways it relates to other parts of life, including ourselves. Hmm. When I was small, I was just interested in these transformations in the natural world. You know, how do things rot? How does soil form? You know, how do these solid logs become soil? Um, I found this very fascinating and still do. You write about what you call the wood wide web, which uh, we love. And uh, <laughs> you describe how networks can be, of course, kind of beneficial, but also quite dangerous, transmitting poisons and viruses. Do you see parallels between the modern internet and the network of mycelium? That's a good question. And the term wood wide web, which is not my term, it's a term that was coined by someone called David Reed, who's a big mycorrhizal researcher in the, in the 90s. And it refers to this ability of fungal networks, mycorrhizal networks, to link different plants together and for material to move between plants, whether nutrients, uh, water, or potentially other things. So the wood wide web, it bakes into itself this idea that it is like the internet and the world wide web. And to some degree, um, yes, you know, this is an easy comparison, a convenient comparison for us to make because our most handy network concept is that of the internet and the World Wide Web. So up to a point, it's helpful, I think, because it allows us to think about plants as being socially networked and fungi also as being socially networked. So it's a good way in. But I think the metaphor runs out of steam quite fast because, first of all, it's a machine metaphor. The World Wide Web, the internet is, is a more organic self-organizing type structure than many machines, but it's still made up of machines which require humans to maintain them. And so any machine metaphor is limited when we're describing the natural world because organisms grow, machines are built, organisms self-organize, and machines are maintained and organized by humans. So I think there's a problem. Also, there's a bigger problem perhaps in that it makes it seem that fungi, the organisms connecting plants together, are, are, are cables or passive wires. And I think that does the fungi a disservice because each link in a wood wide web is a fungus with a life of its own. And these are active parts of the system. So the wood wide web analogy, I think it masks the fact that the connections are actually made of organisms. Mm. In the book, you, you also write about microbes, how it's now understood that we carry around more microbes than our own cells and that there's a lot more bacteria in our gut than there are stars in the galaxy. What, in your mind, is the purpose of the microbe? Well, I don't know if there's necessarily a purpose. I mean, microbes, life is a story of microbes. <laughs> we are a very, very late addition of complex multicellular animals and large complex multicellular animals mm -hmm. like ourselves. We're very late to the game. For much of life's history, the vast majority, life's been microbial and will no doubt revert to being microbial if there's any kind of serious calamity that occurs. So... I think it's hard to answer that question of purpose, but certainly we couldn't do without them. These microbes help us digest food, they guide our development, they shape our behaviors. These organisms are as much a part of us as many of our own cells. And so it makes some sense of sense to think of them as, as analogous to an organ of our body. Mm. It's an analogy that helps us to understand how vital these things are for our everyday, our ambient everyday survival. Do you think that 
the microbe can communicate as a, a body sort of independently of our own conscious involvement with it? Well, I mean, microbe is a very general term. So mm. it just means microorganism and, and the microbial world is, there are many ways to be a microbe. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's important to avoid lumping these all together into one category. I mean, microbe just means small thing, basically. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I think it depends on the microbe and, and different microbes have different ways of communicating. They have different habits. They have different ways of being, different ways of reproducing different lifespans, diets, habitats. In reference to the microbiome that we talk about in our own bodies, though, you know, there's so much being discussed right now as people learn more and more about it, but there's there's conspiracy theories, there's all sorts of narratives about the microbiome and what it kind of, its power, its purpose. So I think maybe looking at it a different way, do you believe that a microbiome within us can communicate with a microbiome in someone else? I know it's a ridiculous question, but <laughs> yeah, I think it's a ridiculous question. And I think this is something that happens all the time. There are these studies which have been looking into how similar the microbiomes of different people are. Mm. And there are some great results. Couples who live together, their microbiomes are more similar to each other if they have a dog than if they have a baby. So you're like, well, why would they be more similar? I mean, dogs are amazing vectors for microbes. And the dogs kind of obviously shuttle between couples there microbiome but intimacy itself you know sexual intimacy physical intimacy is a great way to inoculate another person and be inoculated in return and i think maybe when we talk about good chemistry or bad chemistry on some level we might be talking about the degree to which our different microbiomes are compatible with each other and this is just mm. a speculation but we're used to this idea that these organisms control or determine or contribute to so many of our traits i think it's very possible that that we're familiar with these microbial communications without knowing it mm. I want to pull back and look at the forest. Should a forest be imagined as a single superorganism, or should we look at it as kind of a grouping of these independent individualistic ones? It's a scale question. Yeah. And it's a big one. If we're looking at the level of the ecosystem and the level of the forest, then in many ways it makes sense to think of this as this humming, thrumming, dynamical system, mm. shimmering in ceaseless, unceasing turnover. And these organisms all creating the habitat in which the other organisms are living, shaping their growth, affecting their behavior, cycling nutrients. And this is a dynamic system and should be thought of as one. If you zoom in and look at a single tree, then that tree itself is a kind of ecosystem. Mm -hmm. It's fungi living in its trunk, in its leaves, in its roots. But zoom in again to a plant root, you have these fungi in the roots, you have bacteria living inside the fungi, and you have viruses living inside those bacteria. You know? So that's itself an ecosystem again, in shimmering, unceasing turnover. So this scale thing is, it's ecosystems all the way down. Why stop at the forest? And if you're scaling up, then you have to get bigger than the forest as well and start thinking about the atmosphere. You know, mm. lots of tropical forest is fertilized by dust that's blown over from the Sahara. So then where do you stop? Life forms are open systems. So I think it's very important to be aware of this question of scale. At what scale are we examining these things? But I think generally speaking, for me, the most helpful thing is to see all life forms as ecosystems to some degree. Mm. As humans, what, you know, what are your thoughts about what we can learn about community and cooperation from the systems that you've been studying? Well, the main thing, I think, is that, that symbiosis, that this intimate sharing of bodily space and these intimate reciprocal relationships are a, a ubiquitous feature of life. You know, I was at this conference in Panama once on tropical microbes and uh, someone got up to talk about these plants. And they said, this type of plant, it produces this type of chemical in the leaves. This is how we know that this plant is this plant. 
And then they said, well, actually, it's this fungus that produces this chemical. So we have to redraw our understanding of the plant. And then someone said, no, it's a bacteria that live inside the fungus. And we have to redraw our idea of the plant again. And someone said, no, maybe it's the viruses inside the bacteria, inside the fungus, inside the plant. And again, we have to redraw our understanding of the plant. So I think when we understand that life is relationships all the way down, you know, mm. this is just how things work. And some of these relationships are cooperative and some are about competition but generally collaboration is always a blend of cooperation and competition and at different moments it might be happening in different ways so i think once we realize that the idea of the individual is a human idea that we apply for our convenience to biological systems and that actually what we're seeing and we see organisms and see ourselves and see anything we look at any living form that we look at, where we're seeing bundles of relationships, I think then it will help us to understand the importance of our concept of selfhood. You know, where do our selves start and stop? We live in a very individualistic society, very individualistic culture, and maybe we could loosen, soften the edges of our individualism a little bit. I think that would do us some good. Mm. And an easy way to do that, at least I've found, is to, is to think about and inquire into these relationships in the world around us and the ones that make up our own bodies. Mm. You write about preconceptions and blind spots sort of connected to this. And how do you think this is playing out in today's world that we're in? And, and what have you learned in relation to preconceptions from fungi that have altered the way you see the world? Yeah, so uh, and fungi, I find that they've loosened these preconceptions. So then, then what, I, what I perceive is it's less what I expect to see and more what I, I actually look rather than look and project what I expect to see. Mm. And I can't always do this, of course. Our cognition is, is based on expectation and, and we can never fully escape that. But I find fungi are a good way to loosen the grips of some of those preconceptions. So at that point, then lots of things change. So when, for example, we're thinking about disease and microbes, an old, I'd say actually very stale way of thinking about diseases in terms of these outside attackers, you know, the fortress of our body being attacked by some virulent outsider who's going to put us to harm. And when we think actually that our immune systems have evolved as much to regulate the populations of microbes that live in our own bodies as to fight off outsiders, that actually many of the bacteria in our gut, which provide crucial services in our gut, would cause a fatal disease in our bloodstream. You know, that, that this is about context and it's about regulating balances. And so this narrative of the poisonous outsider that needs to be kept out, which is how we think about our lives and nations, as you know, and as we all know, as many people suffer for this reason, that actually we can adapt that and start thinking more about the balances in our body and the way that uh, balance is maintained or not and if it goes out of balance then why and how could we tend back towards balance and what could that set of behaviors be that would tend us towards, towards balance so i think that's one way that the microbial symbiotic world has shifted my preconceptions about disease for one thing hmm. you've previously referred to your interest in studying sort of the understories understory and i'm curious about hearing your thoughts on this is sort of a narrative device, like the story within the story. Could you talk about your approach to narrative and storytelling when it comes to what you study? Yes. Yeah, so I really learned about this when I was studying at the History and Philosophy of Science, uh, which is a wonderful discipline where, where you put science and the practices of science, the technologies and systems of science in the spotlight itself. 
And you ask, how is it that we make these knowledges? And how are these knowledges communicated? And how are these knowledges taught and stored and preserved? And what are these ways that we go about building this body of of knowledge? And and how is it that this knowledge becomes something special, something we call scientific knowledge? And it's a lot about asking these stories, the backstage stories. You know, if you read a scientific publication, you have this, well, I have this hypothesis, I'm going to test it. Here I am testing it here are my results, and here's my conclusions. But the backstage, there's a huge amount that went into that. There's maybe thousands of lines of code by an anonymous coder. There's these complex pieces of equipment made from different parts of the world, assembling supply chains here and there for political reasons that we haven't heard about. There's the interests and predispositions of the scientists involved, who they met, had that drunken conversation with at that conference, <laughs> gave them the idea. You know, all of these interesting things, this backstage, these understories mm. that don't get told. And so I got into thinking about these understories and, and, and how important they are for understanding how, how we go about making knowledge in the world. And so in the book, when I talk about it, I'm kind of using that perspective. Which relates to the whole kind of physical relationship we have with fungi. It's all beneath and something we don't see. Exactly. So it was a very natural way to think about fungi because it was the, you know, the great unseen in, in, in our lives. There are lots of great unseens in our lives, of course, but the fungal great unseen is what got me thinking about that. Mm. So much of what you write has to do with these network-based systems. From your understanding of those, what can we apply to the built environment in terms of thinking about that sort of juncture between, say, our cities and what you're studying? Well, there are some people doing this right now, actually, with slime molds, which are, they're not true fungi, but they're a type of amoeba. They're network-based organisms like fungi are, so we can use them to, to think about the lives of these organisms that live as fusing, branching networks. But researchers in Japan have used slime molds to model the subway systems. They put oat flakes on a Petri dish, and the slime mm. mold likes the oat flakes, so it distributes itself in this network between the oat flakes, and in the course of an afternoon, it created a network that paralleled the Tokyo subway system. So people have started to use these networks, fungi or slime molds, to, to model, to solve these spatial problems that would take quite a long time for us to solve computationally. They're tricky, these spatial problems, there's so many permutations. And so you can use these organisms in a quite a literal way to simulate, to find shortest paths, efficient routes, solve routing problems, basically. And that's already in play and shows great promise. And so when we're thinking about the efficient design of transport networks, for example, be mm. one very natural way, one natural place to go. And of course, mushrooms are, are now used as insulation and a, a building material itself. Absolutely. So the mycelium is encouraged to grow into certain forms and uh, then dried. Yeah, packaging for servers, structures, board and bricks to make buildings, leather. It's great. When you completed your book, you kind of reimagined the book is an object, a host for new life. Can you, uh, can you tell us about that? <laughs> Absolutely. So I just wanted to enact some of these processes that I'd been talking about. So I thought that I'd, I'd inoculate the book with oyster mushrooms, which would devour it in no time. And then I'd eat the mushrooms that sprouted out of the book and um, thus be able to eat my words. In fact, I've got some sprouting <laughs> right now. I'm going to have a feast tomorrow. <laughs> But it's a way of giving it back to these organisms. You know, I didn't want to just be sitting there talking about these organisms. It's like, okay, I'm going to talk about them, and then these words are going to be there, printed on these pages. But I need to join the circuit somehow. You know, I need to, I need to make that connection. So it was a way of closing the loop and 
and quite fun as well. And the next step is to to dissolve the pages with a weak acid into into dissolve the cellulose into sugars and then ferment them and make a beer, which I'll then drink. So two ways to consume the book. You took part in a clinical study into LSD that you write about in the book. Can you take us through that experience, how it came to be and, and what it was like and why you did it? So I first heard about it because there were these posters put up in science departments around the country and I saw it pinned to the departmental notice board in Cambridge in the plant sciences department. They said, do you have a meaningful problem that needs solving? I was like, yes. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't. What a great way. And they said, do you want to participate in a LSD trial, most studying the effects of LSD on the problem-solving abilities of scientists and mathematicians. I was like, sign me up. So I, I called up and got in touch, and I was admitted to this study. And it was an amazing study, really, that very brave in the sense that it's, you know, this is no straightforward task to measure problem-solving abilities, given that everyone has very different types of problems. You know, we had mathematicians studying set theory. We had, you know, there was me, an ecologist, there were biochemists, there were all sorts of people. So everyone was given a dose of LSD and then asked to think about their work-related problems and, and to see if these psychedelic experiences could, could provide new ways in to old problems, to these tough recalcitrant knots that we were all fumbling with. You know, could, could LSD help these knots loosen and help us untie these knots? And it was a, a repeat of an experiment that had been done in the 60s or 70s uh, with mescaline and with various creative um, professionals. So it was different cohorts. So there were three people at a time and each had a room with a bed and an assistant. And, and there was a desk laid out with colored crayons and pads of paper and all the kind of things that you might need when you're being creative. Um, and then after a while, we were prompted to think about our problems and some people found it helpful and some people less helpful. There was a mathematician who was doing it at the same time as me. And afterwards, he, he said that he'd, um, he'd sat down at the desk to try and start thinking about his work-related problem, but he was so high that when he drew the, a bracket, the beginning of an equation, the bracket just wriggled off the page like a snake. <laughs> could go no further. So he went back to bed. Mm. I found it very helpful myself because it allowed me to think about the relationships between plants and fungi in, this, in a new kind of way. It helped me just approach the problem from a new angle and to actually I had a very vivid experience. felt like I was in the soil, in this kind of wild, seething wilderness of the soil, mm. a very busy, um, sometimes scary place. So it helped me remember that the soil is a wilderness, that these are living systems, these are living organisms. These aren't just schematic entities that school teachers draw on the blackboard when when people talk about hallucinogenic experiences the environment's so important and what i was struck with was that you were in a room with a bed and a desk as you describe thinking about a place that you weren't physically in and i was uh, curious what you thought about how different it would have been if you were in say you know a forest or a natural environment in the forest or a natural environment, I think I would have made quite a lot of effort to feel myself as present there, right there, and to notice what was happening around me, to notice the wind, to notice the feeling of the floor, the damp smells rising up from the ground, or whatever, depending on where I was. But in the hospital, it was more a question of trying not to notice the sound of the ventilator and the leaping in the distant hallway and the pacing of nurses outside. And so it was a different kind of psychological uh, process a projection I, I was trying to journey away from my place rather than into it do you think that was helpful ultimately to your insights that you drew from it possibly in the sense that i went further out of my normal sensory sort of cockpit 
I was not in my body perceiving in the way that I normally am. I, it was more of a journey. I went closed my eyes and traveled further away like that. Many people use psychedelics in traditional contexts more in that way, where you, it's not about seeing and being entranced by the things around you. It's about traveling inside mm -hmm. and taking it in the dark with, with blindfold on or, and that kind of projection and outwards from the body rather than this being in the body and perceiving. Did you find it ultimately useful in your research uh, moving forward? And, and do you think you would continue to integrate it into your, your practice? Yes, I think so. I, I think it's a very helpful way to, again, to loosen the grips of our habits and our habits about the way we think, the habits of thought. You know, when we get so used to thinking about things in certain ways that we forget that there are alternatives. And, and suddenly we stumble across those alternatives, maybe with the help of a psychedelic, maybe with the help of something else or another kind of situational change. And, and then we're startled. You know, and it's like, wow, I've totally forgotten that there were these other ways of thinking about this, this situation. There were these other factors involved that I just hadn't thought. You know, I'd step back into some bigger room where there are these, these things I didn't think were connected, but of course they're connected. This kind of thought pattern shift, I think, really helps us as humans thinking about problems in our work or in our passions, but also just in our everyday life about our feelings and the way we treat other people and ourselves. Mm. It probably helps to get away from the individualism you were talking about earlier as well. Absolutely. And that's what they've been finding in studies. You know, this, this very distinct kind of report from people, which is this sense of ego dissolution, it's called, or, or the sense of losing track of where you stop and everything else starts. Losing track of this neatly bounded sense of self. This is one of the most pronounced and consistent effects of psychedelics that's emerging from this new wave of studies into, into the subject. And so I think it's a very quick route to, <laughs> to blur the boundaries of the self, for sure. So be, be, before we let you go from the hallucinogenic conversation, <laughs> uh, I was curious if you've um, done the same sort of experimentation with psilocybin and if you find the study of fungi through a, an experience that's altered by psilocybin as different from LSD. Well, they're quite different experiences. Magic mushrooms or psilocybin-containing mushrooms were legal in England in 2003, 4, and 5. And there was this huge boom. These things could be sold fresh, not dried. And so there were people on the high streets selling crates of this stuff. And it was quite amazing. There was only one company in London was selling 25,000 trips a week. And mm. that was just one company. So, yeah, so a lot of experimentation was taking place here during that time. And I certainly ate these fresh mushrooms during that time and had very, very astonishing experiences. But it's, it's, a different, it's a different feeling from LSD. For one thing, LSD is a single chemical, whereas psilocybin is part of a cocktail of chemicals produced by an organism. And when you eat the organism, you're taking this whole chorus of molecules, which subtly impact the way that they affect you. They modulate each other. And so there's more of a sense of um, being affected by a, by a chemical choir than by a soloist. Mm. I like the music analogy because I wanted to to bring up the fact that you play the accordion. <laughs> and um, what does that role serve for you as a creative outlet? And is there a link between your interest in mushrooms and your interest in accordion? Well, I'd say that the there's a link between my interest in life as a biologist and my interest in music more generally, mm -hmm. for sure. Specifically with mushrooms and the accordion, though, I, I would say not so much. We just have to step back a tiny bit from both of those to find the link there. <laughs> With the accordion, I, I started playing because I played the piano for ages and I got frustrated with it being so, so heavy and impossible to carry around. I was jealous of guitarists and people who had a portable instrument, so I started playing the accordion as a way to 
be able to carry around an instrument that I could play in lots of different situations. Mm. In particular, I like it because it's very outgoing and it sits on your chest. You can't really look at the keys while you're playing. So your face is free to look elsewhere or at other players you're playing with. So it's a kind of gregarious, outgoing instrument. Whereas the piano is more like a jealous lover and it demands your full frontal attention. (laughs) And this link between music and mushrooms, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I think more more fungi, you know, the mycelial networks that give rise to mushrooms. But I've I've just been thinking about determinacy and indeterminacy in in life forms. You know, we live quite terminate lives developmentally. You know, if we're born with two arms, short of an intervention, you'll die with two arms. And fungi aren't like this. Like plants, they can grow into many different forms or in many different ways, depending on where they grow and who they grow with. And so this is what we call indeterminism, developmental indeterminism. And so it's a hard concept for us to get around because we're not used to it. And so I got thinking about ourselves and realized that we do have this indeterminate part of us, and it's our minds. You know, our minds are not condi- conditioned by our bodies to some degree, but they're indeterminate compared to our bodies. You know, our thoughts branch and fuse and scatter off in different directions and link round in ways that don't seem linear. And you know, it's, it's, a, it's this indeterminate space. And when we entertain possibilities of the future, you know, make choices, then we have these virtual futures that kind of arise before us and we choose between them. So I think of our minds as this indeterminate pole of our lives. And because of that, I was finding this way to connect music with funky because these polyphonic type musics with lots of different parts that intermingle without one lead part taking the center stage. You know, these lots of different types of music are, are polyphonies. I found the polyphony a very helpful way to relax my mind into a kind of uh, a bit like softening your eyesight, you know, when you can see mm. all the things in this hemisphere around you. It was a bit like that with my ears. And I found that I could, that my mind could perceive all these different tunes at the same time and still hear the whole piece of music that they were contributing to. And it was a bit like the way I'd been trying to understand mycelial networks, which are made up of a multitude of tips, of growing tips, but which are still connected into a, a whole. You seem to have applied that to the way you've educated yourself as well. I found it interesting that you, when you were studying for your PhD, there wasn't any single expert at, at the place you were studying. So you established this sort of network of what you called subject godparents. Were you aware that you were developing a network to study a network? <laughs> Only when I thought about it a bit later. I mean, it's one of these interesting sides of, of symbiosis as a as a subject of biological study. And it has been since the beginning, you know, in a specialized biological world where you have physiologists and biochemists and bacteriologists and botanists. To study the relationships between plants and fungi, you have to form relationships between botanists and mycologists. You have to form relationships between mycologists and bacteriologists to study the relationship between fungi and bacteria. And so this leaps across disciplinary boundaries mirror the leaps across species boundaries that are formed in the living world. And I think it's one of the nice consequences of these symbiotic life forms that that actually force us to enact somehow um, these relationships in our own human lives as we study them. It's a way of them imprinting themselves on us. So I realized that actually my experience was part of a much larger experience. Hmm. As a final question, at this moment, What's kind of giving you the most hope as we move and emerge out of this moment? And what is sort of making you feel most hopeful right now? I think maybe the sense that it really feels that a lot of people have realized that the situation, the system that we are living in is, is 
not appropriate to serve the needs of the people it's supposed to serve, and not appropriate to fulfill its responsibilities to the environments in which it lives, um, to fulfill its responsibilities to the future generations who will have to live in those environments. So the inadequacy of our system to fulfill its basic needs, I think, has never been clearer. And that gives me hope, because until that's recognized, we're not going to have the will, the political, cultural, social will, to transform it. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us today. We found this just incredibly interesting and exciting. You're doing amazing work and and sharing it so beautifully, really enjoying the book, and, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.